I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. I'm Nate Hedgie. Oh, hold on, sorry. Okay. Oh, <clears throat> dude, I was ready, man. I'm ready. I'm, I'm actually ready. I'm Nate Hedgie. I'm Taylor Quimby. And this is Outside In. So, Nate, you're in Montana. I'm in New Hampshire. Both are among the first states to achieve peak fall foliage every year. Uh, And the season is almost upon us, so I have a question. Yes. Do people in Montana also use the term leaf peepers to describe folks who travel to look at leaves in the fall? Nope. And you know what? I just don't like the word peeper. Peeper, it's just the way it looks, the way it sounds. I just don't like it. I don't like it. Oh, God. No, I hate it. Okay, good. Like, let's be honest. We use peeping in the phrase peeping Tom. Yeah, it's creepy. It's creepy. We don't want to, like, be peeping around corners looking at leaves. No. It doesn't need to be secretive. No, no. Get out there. Go leaf hunting. So, Nate, I am committed to ridding the world of this horrible phrase, leaf peepers, and come up with an alternative. And just to get us started, I can tell you that in Japan, uh, fall foliage-based tourism is called momijigari. Ooh, I like that. Which translates to something like maple hunting or red leaf hunting. Way better. Way better. In another part of Japan, they use another word. I don't know how to pronounce this, but I think it's kanpukai, which means Mm -hmm. getting together to view the leaves. Yes. Very wholesome. Perfect. So I'd love to get something a little bit more like that. Uh, to replace leaf peepers here in New England. And I've got a couple phrases I've been working up. I just want to get your feedback here. Uh, one, just straight up leaf lookers. All right. I Yeah, I'll give that like a, a C. Okay. Color chasers. That's kind of fun. I like that one. <laughs> Good. Uh, fall foliage of files. 
No, no. <laughs> too much, no. too much alliteration on too that much, one. Yeah, too much alliteration. I know what you're doing. That's a that's a classic Taylor one. Jeez, yeah. oh, <laughs> that one took some thinking. You got me pegged. So, if anybody out there has a good replacement for leaf peeping, tweet it to us. We're at Outside in Radio, or join our private Facebook group and share it there. But moving on, this episode is supposed to be one of the ones where we answer your questions about the natural world. So, let's dive in and open the outside inbox. Okay, Taylor, I am the host of the show, but you're like the listener question MC. So what have we got today? Okay, so we've got the usual random smattering of animal questions, my favorite type. Uh, those are coming up in the back half of the show. But for this first one, producer Justin Paradise and I tackled a question submitted by Philip in Portland, Maine. Hi, Outside Inbox. This is Philip from Portland, Maine. And my question is, have humans always thought of ice as cold? Or has our conception of hot and cold shifted along with our climate? To put it a different way, would a Neanderthal in Maine still need a jacket in November? What do you, what do you think, by the way? Yeah, I totally think that our uh, perceptions are shaped by our environment. When I go down to the south or something and people are like, oh, it's really cold today, I, I feel a little superior <laughs> to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It's like, I mean, even between winter and summer, my tolerance changes. Yeah. Before I try to answer the spirit of the question, I kind of want to focus on the example. So would a Neanderthal in Maine in November need a jacket? First of all, there were no Neanderthals in Maine. The remains are mostly found in Europe. Uh, so this one would be very far away from home. Second of all, to answer this question accurately, we would have to know when Philip is asking about because November aside, Neanderthals existed from 40,000 years ago to more than 350,000 years ago. A lot of climate cycles in there. Exactly. Throughout that period, the climate has been both colder and warmer than it is today. So, you know, we always picture Neanderthals with woolly mammoths, but what about like the hot jungle Neanderthal? The savanna Neanderthal. Different vibe. <laughs> now, the reason I know this stuff is because I recently read a book by Rebecca Rag Sykes. She's the archaeologist and author of Kindred, Neanderthal, Life, Love, Death, and Art. And she basically told me, listen, you don't need to be an archaeologist to figure this one out. If the question is, is a Neanderthal who grew up in a glacial period, are they just going to sort of feel cold in general? I think, yeah, the answer is still yes, because if you look at people from northern latitudes they still have to wear an awful lot of clothing so she's basically saying like listen do you think that people who live in the arctic circle think it's cold yeah like yeah <laughs> <laughs> on that basis we can assume that neanderthals at least during the cold periods did actually need some kind of tailored clothing um you know like a, a loose flapping skin is not really going to cut it and in fact, we do see an awful lot of evidence from their tools that they were working animal skins all the time. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, let me say ice is probably going to be cold no matter what. But how we perceive cold in general is definitely relative to our experience. Our perceptions of hot and cold are influenced by our bodies, our cultures, our expectations. Susana Martinez-Conde is a neuroscientist I spoke with. She's written a lot about sensory perception. And she told me in the 19th century, there was a tradition among some Korean women who would collect shellfish by diving into deep water, even in the wintertime. And they would do it wearing only thin cotton bathing suits. 
Nowadays, the women that do this are wearing wetsuits instead. There are actually some laboratory studies that have been conducted, and it seems that cold tolerance in these women divers is not what it used to be back when they didn't have access to wetsuits as they do today. So maybe someone living in an ice age climate would feel cold temperatures differently over their lifetime? Yeah, I think I think maybe. As in some Ice Age humans might have a high higher tolerance if they're living in cold climates all the time. I guess I still don't understand if that's psychological or physiological. I don't I think it's it's probably both and hard to to separate them. Mm. Culture and our bodies are intertwined. Right. But just to completely and utterly blow this question up, you know, we can't really know anything about how different people feel. It's sort of like the movie The Matrix. You know, reality is a simulation. We all uh, live in the matrix, uh, in a sense, in the matrix that our brains create because we cannot know outside of our own experience. So did we answer Philip's question? No. (laughs) What is hot? What is cold? You tell me. Good luck, Philip. Once again, Taylor, continuing our tradition of not actually answering listener questions. That is what I do. We're all just living in a simulation, Nate. (laughs) Okay, so simulation aside, what's up next? Uh, So you should remember this one uh, that you talked about with producer Felix Poon. Mm -hmm. It coincidentally also touches on our early human ancestry. Colin Armstrong on Instagram asks, why do we like to stare at fire? Oh, man, I love staring at fire. <laughs> right? It's like hypnotizing. Oh, it's like it's like a, a massage or just like <laughs> it just like flushes my brain. Yeah. You know? And I could just like I have no thoughts. I'm just looking at the, the warm glow of a campfire. And it feels like primordial. I mean, humans have had a relationship with fire since, you know, essentially time immemorial. Right. It's hard to pinpoint the exact moment. But some estimates say that our hominid ancestors started using fire about two million years ago. And isn't fire the reason why we actually have really powerful brains? Because it gave us the ability to cook? Yeah, all of the experts I spoke to said that fire gave rise to cooking. And cooking unlocks the next level of digestion. Like, it literally takes less energy to get more calories. Do you ever wonder, like, who is the first person to, like, take this animal and be like, you know what I want to do? I want to I burn this animal and then eat it after it's burned. <laughs> I mean, it's a great question. The first step was probably that our ancestors simply stumbled upon naturally occurring fires. And then from that fire, they saw, like, small mammals that caught in that fire. And they're like, oh, let me eat that. Right. But how do we go from stumbling upon these naturally occurring wildfires to actually making fires ourselves? So I spoke to Francis Burton. She's the author of a book called Fire, The Spark That Ignited Human Evolution. And it wouldn't be a great big jump to sort of put things in it, like dried grass or small twigs, and keep it going. And then from there, Francis says our ancestors learned how to transport fire by moving embers or using a fire stick, a practice she says still exists among indigenous people in South Africa, where they light a small branch on fire. And as they go along, when the fire stick becomes dull, they light some dry grass, and which reignites their stick as well, and then they go on. So to get back to your question, maybe we like to stare at fire because we've spent millions of years cooking and keeping warm and literally keeping an eye on the flames to keep them going. That is an interesting theory. But actually, not everyone agrees that staring at fire is even a thing. 
I spoke to anthropologist Daniel Fessler, and Daniel says that staring at fire tends to be a thing people only do in developed regions of the world. For example, in contrast, there's this small village in southwestern Sumatra in Indonesia, where Daniel lived for almost three years. Many of the people there rely on food for cooking and heating, and children learn to master fire by playing with it unsupervised. Around sort of age five, kids start building play fires. By the time that they're sort of seven or eight, they have complete mastery of it. That's why, according to Daniel, adults there don't have the same fascination with fire that we do. They don't stare into fire. Because they're using fire all the time for like every aspect of life, right? Yeah, it's like it's, the, it's, it's not as romanticized as it is here, say, in the U.S., but back to Frances Burton, she points out that firelight changed circadian rhythms. Our ancestors stayed up later, essentially, and with more waking hours, it helped promote speech development and culture because we were sitting around evening fires and telling stories and maybe coming up with new ideas. Right. Like when you sit around the campfire, the fire is literally in the middle of the conversation. Yeah. And she also thinks there's a specific reason people are drawn to look at it. Firelight dances, it moves, but you're going to check it out because it might be dangerous. So it's not the fire itself that people are staring at. It's movement that is causing them to look at it. Hmm. I like to think that the movement of fire is pretty unique, though. Totally. And like Francis says it right there, firelight dances. So of course, I'm going to pull up a chair and watch this age-old primordial performance. That question was answered by Felix Boone. Well, it is time for a break, and since we're talking about campfires, this is a good time to remind you that we're collecting spooky stories for a Halloween episode. Specifically, we want to hear about your fears, you know, like what in nature scares the heck out of you, where does that fear come from, how does it affect your life, stuff like that. Are you scared of spiders, Nate? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My wife makes fun of me all the time about it. Mm. Snakes? I'm afraid of uh, uh, things in the ocean, though, but I think a lot of people are. Like something brushing against your leg. Yeah. Submit your fear. We may use it on the show. Send a voice memo to outsidein at nhpr.org or call us at 1-844-GO-OTTER. Okay, we'll be right back. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate. I'm Taylor. And today we're answering your questions about the natural world. So, Taylor, what's next? Uh, Up to you, Nate. Would you like to hear about dog poo or dog allergies? (laughs) That's a terrible choice. (laughs) Well, don't shoot the messenger, man, because the people send the mail and we are just the ones who have to answer it. (laughs) Folks just came back from the break. They want something tantalizing. Dog poop it is. All right. Dog poop. There you go. Hi, this is Anne in Hollis, New Hampshire. My question is based on the fact that I do a lot of pet sitting and dog walking, and I'm wondering why dogs scratch and kind of dig backwards after they poop. Thank you so much. Bye. Yes, I've wondered that as well. Yeah, you've got three dogs. Can you describe this for folks who who maybe haven't witnessed it? Yeah, so uh, when they're down and they're pooping, Afterwards, they'll like kick up a bunch of grass. It's like a ceremony. It's like a, a post-poop ceremony. Any theories as to what you think they're doing? I think they're they're trying very badly to cover the poop with a little bit of dirt. That's what I think. So that was the first thing that came to my mind as well. Uh, you know, cats, armadillos, woodchucks, weasels, these are all animals that bury their feces, right. um, which is an effort to throw predators off uh, their scent or maybe to avoid like a territorial dispute with other members of the same species. The problem is, I've watched my dog do this, and like you're saying, she's doing a terrible job if if what she's trying to do is bury her poop. A very crappy job. A very, <laughs> a very crappy job. So to learn more, I, I reached out to Carrie McClanahan. She's done a, a bit of dog research. She's currently an environmental scientist with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Mm-hmm. And I called her up and I said, hey, listen, is my dog trying to hide her poop? Um, From what I've read, that does not seem to be the case. Um, (laughs) it seems to be more, you know, if anything, more drawing attention to it. So our theory is wrong, Nate. Very wrong. So the first indication uh, is that there is some evidence, Carrie tells me, that dogs are more likely to perform these kicky scratchies if there are other dogs literally present. It's performative. Theatrical pooping. Yeah. (laughs) The second reason to suspect that the kicking is more about spreading scent than it is about hiding it is that dogs are actually leaving a trail with literally every step they take. Hmm. So um, dogs do have some scent glands on their feet. And a lot of listeners maybe are familiar with the scent on their feet. A lot of times it's referred to as Frito feet. Have you ever heard of this? Do you ever smell your dog's feet? Yes. I've never, I've never heard it actually called Frito feet, but I have smelled my dog's feet and they do smell like Fritos. Yeah. So so these scent slash sweat glands on dog feet, they're called pedal glands with a D, pedal. Um, they interact with naturally occurring bacteria, and they produce, for some reason, a smell that most people associate with corn chips. That's way better smell than, than our own human feet. I would love if my feet smelled like snacks. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, but, but to get back to the point, what we're learning is that the kicking backward in the dirt is actually flinging that Frito smell as far and wide as possible. Like, like something is probably being communicated intentionally here. The problem is that we yeah. don't know exactly what the message is. Carrie told me that it's not always clear when these are territorial displays, like, yo, this is my zone, keep out, 
Or if it's a more social behavior that's like the opposite. Hey, check it out. Like, here I am. Come smell. I bet they do it because it just feels good. Who knows? Like, we don't know. How do we know? I think it's I think it's all of the above. Yeah. One more fun fact, though, that is pretty well documented. When dogs are doing that super close-up sniffing thing, they're actually using different nostrils for different smells. <laughs> the left nostril is more either kind of neutral or pleasant odors, and then the right nostril tends to correspond more towards, yeah, something that's maybe a little less pleasant. So, Taylor, the real question is, which nostril do they use when they're smelling other dogs' poop? Right, like, is it, is it pleasant for them or just purely business? <laughs> I think I think they like it. It really grosses me out just how close my dog's nostril can get to a piece of poop. And I then, know. like, ten minutes later, she'll give me a kiss, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's gross. But, you know, for each their own. Yeah, for each their own. Okay, so... <laughs> I think I think we need a palate cleanser after that, Taylor. Do you have anything that could like not be about dog poop? Uh, yes. Okay. So we'll Good. we'll save the dog allergies, and we can do uh, this question that you talked about with producer Felix Poon. So Jessica from Belmont, New Hampshire, is wondering about seagulls. Like, why do we see them at fast food restaurants? Shouldn't they be, you know, at sea? Thirty years ago, as a kid in Laconia, I remember feeding the seagulls on the lake at the Burger King there. That means they must migrate away and they must return. How do they, why? They're seabirds, right? So just to summarize, question is, why do seagulls love fast food and do they migrate? But first things first, let's address what we're calling these birds with a little bird joke. Why don't seagulls fly over the bay? And what we now know is that it's because then they'd be bagels. Ugh, bagels. <laughs> yeah, so this is Sarah Corshane, an ornithologist based on the seacoast in New Hampshire. And her point is, don't let the name fool you. Seagulls are not found exclusively by the sea. In fact, the term seagull is actually a misnomer. Technically, these birds are all just gulls. And Sarah says gulls are happy to hang by any body of water, including lakes and rivers, and of course, where there might be food sources nearby. Like a landfill, where I always see them. Yeah, exactly. So there is one thing that gulls tend to go to sea for, and that's to breed. Gulls breed on islands to avoid ground predators on the mainland. Everywhere you look, these gulls are nesting right on the ground. They make this beautiful little grass cup nest that they kind of nestle into with their bodies, um, and they lay their eggs right there, and it's right in the open. But to feed their young, gulls will commute to find food. And Sarah says there's a lot of variability among individual gulls. Some like to go to Burger King or landfills, while others prefer to catch fish or clams from mudflat. And that's because different gulls develop different expertise depending on what they get more practice with. I knew that seagulls were smart. They're really (laughs) cool. They know how to survive. They can figure it out. Yeah. And gulls even display different parenting styles. Like some parents, as soon as they finish raising their babies in the summer, they're out of there. But other parents will stick around for a while, like this one really committed male parent that Sarah's tracked. And he is very well known for taking his young, flying with them off the island. And he has a very varied diet, like he'll scavenge. He catches his own fish sometimes. 
Um, he eats clams. He also raids picnic baskets, you know, and he'll kind of like demo it. Like, well, this is how you raid a picnic basket. You wait for those people to wander off and go for a swim, and then you just dive in there. So Sarah tracked this gull through the Gulls of Appledore project. Appledore is this island just off the coast of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and it's home to breeding colonies for two species of gulls. And what they do is they put these bands on the gull, and then they rely on the public to report back to them when they see one. So if I see one of these banded gulls, what do I do? So you contact the project and tell them the number on the band. And this is the cool part. The scientists will tell you the full history of that bird, like when they hatched, who their parents are, who their siblings are, where they've been sighted before. And then whatever you've got gets added to that history. We totally just put these bands on the gulls, and then it's like a message in a bottle. It's like, goodbye, bird. I hope someone sees you someday. That is citizen science at work. That's so cool. Yeah, and as for the listener's question about migration, some gulls migrate and others don't. Like, some Appledore gulls stay on the island year-round, but others have been spotted as far away as Texas and Florida. So it varies, just like their diets and parenting styles. Each one has its own individual way of making it in the world. Um, And once you start to see them that way, it really becomes almost impossible to view them as sort of the nuisance animals that a lot of people think they are. That was Sarah Corshane speaking with Felix Poon. I think we should call seagulls that hang out at fast food restaurants McGulls. <laughs> I don't know why that means. <laughs> what do you call them if they hang out at the Burger King? Are they just Burger Gulls? Well, for, for Burger King, it would be Gull Whoppers. Gull Whoppers. I've heard, I bet seagulls taste disgusting, by the way. Like, if you were to ever, like, have to hunt and kill a seagull. I don't know. I mean, well. No, no, trust me. Uh, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we've got one last question. This one is going okay. back to dogs, not poop. Okay. It's actually one of the first outside-in boxes ever produced between myself and producer Justine Paradise. Um, and uh, I'm going to slip this in just to generate some mail. Dogs are better than cats. Yes, agreed. Let's play the question. <laughs> <laughs> this is Kristen calling from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I'm calling to ask a question about allergy season. Uh, So this spring has been uh, particularly uh, rough for me, and it got me wondering if animals also experience allergies or if it's just us humans. Thanks. So to tackle this question, it's easiest to start with some of the animals we know best, which is to say our pets. Um, And to help, I turned first to Ilya Tate Voino. She's assistant professor at University of Washington in the Department of Immunology. Dogs can be allergic to pollen. Dogs can be allergic to foods. Uh, Dogs can be allergic to human dander, believe it or not. So your dog can be allergic to you. What? Yeah. I don't like knowing this about the world. It's a sad, it's a sad, sad thing. Uh, Now, allergies are related to the immune system, uh, which is why I called an immunologist. What happens is something gets into our system, right? And our immune system recognizes it as a threat. In some cases, it might be that the shape of that little bit of pollen or that little bit of mold or dander, it looks a little bit like a a piece of a virus or a bacteria on the microscopic level. Mm. In other cases, it's not as clear why your body recognizes certain things inappropriately as a threat when they are not. So maybe a good follow-up question would be, if animals do get allergies, do they have the same symptoms? And the answer to that is, is yes and no. 
Like humans, animals with allergies might get red itchy eyes or sneeze a lot. But a lot of the symptoms they see are dermatological. They get really, really itchy skin. I would explain it as I want to get rid of my skin because it hurts. That type of phenomenon. So they, they bite and chew just to get rid of the itch. This, by the way, is Norma White-Withers. She's a veterinary dermatologist who specializes in pet allergies. And she told me that the testing is a lot like it is for humans. So she does what's called a prick test. Um, Have you ever heard of one of these? Yeah, um, I have to get one, but the pandemic uh, prevented that, so I just don't eat pine nuts. Yeah, okay, well, there we go. Um, (laughs) And for listeners, you know, they sort of prick the skin in these rows with all sorts of possible allergens. And afterwards, they literally read the bumps on your skin, almost like Braille, to see which allergens had, you know, the biggest reactions. So we grade the reactions from one to four. So uh, Dr. White-Withers told me that just like in people, genetics play a really big role in who gets allergies and who has to do this kind of thing. One month I'll be seeing a whole bunch of pit bulls and the next month I'll see a lot of Maltese. But then there's also the environmental component. People and pets that live in really sanitized environments with, say, less regular exposure to different diseases, they're going to be more prone to allergies. So the dog in your apartment is more likely to have allergies than, like, a wolf living in Yellowstone. Exactly. Yep, exactly. So between cats, dogs, and barnyard animals like horses and cows, we know that some animals get allergies, but do we know that all animals get allergies? That is a very good question. Any animal that has an immune system, immune systems can make mistakes, just like every system in our body. So is it possible that every animal can be allergic? Yes, but I think we just don't know. So we can't say for sure if, for example, squid get allergies because we're just not studying them in that way. Right. Uh, what I will say is that there is some evidence that bottlenose dolphins at least get allergies. Um, I read a blog post by a Ph.D. student named Alexa Kaunaki who says there are captive dolphins who appear to have skin irritation that's specifically related to environmental allergens. Actually, that, that sounds pretty predictable, right? Like if you're trapped in like a pool. Yeah. Well, and it's exactly what you were saying about, you know, the dog versus the wolf. Aaliyah Tate Voino said this is why veterinarians have what they call a, quote, one health perspective, Mm. which is to say the health of animals and humans are deeply intertwined. Oh, I love that. Okay, that's it. We're done. As always, though, if you have a question for Outside In Box or you want to share your fears about the natural world with us for an upcoming episode, please send us a voice memo to outsidein at nhpr.org or you can call our hotline at 1-844-GO-OTTER. And remember, there is no such thing as a stupid question. And in fact, the weirder the question, the better. So please send us one. And if you ever miss these, by the way, uh, we typically feature one Outside Inbox question every other week in our newsletter, which is free. So look for the link to sign up in the show notes. Outside In was produced this week by Taylor Quimby and Felix Poon. It was edited by Taylor Quimby, Justine Paradise, and Rebecca Lavoie. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions, Felix Johansson Carney, Stationary Sign, Jules Gaia, Yomodi, and Flo. Our theme is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.
The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.